Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 2nd, 2016, and my guest is Richard Epstein. He is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University School of Law. He's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, and he is also the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law Emeritus and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. He appears weekly with Troy Senek on the podcast The Libertarian. Richard is a prolific scholar, writer, thinker on a wide range of topics, including property rights, the Constitution, the rule of law, topics he has discussed here in previous episodes, all available in the EconTalk archive. Richard, welcome back to EconTalk. It's always nice to be back with you, Russ. Our topic today is inequality, and it's based on a very thoughtful piece you wrote in reaction to an article in the New York Times. That New York Times article was bemoaning the fact that a Norwegian cruise line has created a separate status on their cruises for 275 elite guests who would in turn get better treatment than the other 4,000 or so passengers, fancier cabins, better amenities, and to some extent they would be physically isolated from uh, the masses. Although I don't know if that's the right word for a cruise ship's other passengers, which is one of the ironies of this article. But the article was criticizing the physical isolation of different classes from each other. And that's an interesting question, whether that's something to be concerned about socially. Uh, But your point was that the author misunderstood the economics of the situation. Uh, What was missing? Well, the first thing is you have to take into account seriously the notion of revealed preferences. If this was such a huge indignity with respect to the other people on that particular cruise ship, what you would expect is for the uh, basic demand to dry up or evaporate as this elite group gets more and more pampered. But you don't see anything like it. I mean, these are less than 10% of the people on the boat. And my guess is if you were to ask the other 4,000 plus, they would regard it as something of a modest amenity to have people with a little bit of star and glitter on the same ship that they are. And so the criticism isn't based upon the sense that it's a market failure, which means it's not based on the sense that there's something wrong for the people who are involved in this situation. Rather, it's an aesthetic concern by somebody outside the situation who really doesn't like to see these kinds of walls of separations and is so confident in his moral judgments that he's willing, if he could possibly have the wherewithal to do so, to impose this upon somebody else. And that, of course, is another one of the hidden mistakes economically in this argument. It's okay for him to be indignant if the only thing he wants to do is to take another cruise ship line or stay home, uh, but it takes a lot more to justify regulation of other people's behavior than your own indignation and offense about what they're doing. And so the question to ask Schwartz, or at least one of the questions to ask him, yeah, the, author, now the author was Nelson Schwartz. Nelson Schwartz, yes, um, is, uh, tell me, are you prepared to ban this particular form of behavior? Indeed, let's go further. Are you prepared to ban uh, sending off to sea any cruise ship uh, where 95% of the people have incomes which put them in the top 5% of the overall population? I don't think he's prepared to do that. So at this particular point, it's a classic form of economic cheap talk. And it's also the case, I think, as I could explain if you want me to, uh, why it is that the economics essentially make clear uh, that the patterns of behaviors that we see are not irrational and they're not transient and they're not ephemeral. They're there for very strong and powerful reasons. 
Well, the part I like is that um, you point out that in, often in these cases, uh, it's the less pampered passengers who are being subsidized effectively by the pampered ones. So talk about how that, that works and why it's not in the interest of the of the poorer passengers or in any of these situations. And we'll talk about some different applications of this principle in, in a little bit, but why it's not in their interest to, to rule out these kind of uh, tiered uh, differential pricing and, and amenity uh, treatment. Okay, look, what you have to do is to imagine an alternative universe in which there are two cruise ships, one which only has the 275 elite passengers, and it's going to be a smaller boat. Uh, it's going to have heavy fixed cost, and it turns out they're going to have to pay more per person in order to reach the same level of amenities. On the other hand, the 4,000 people who don't have these richer folks in there, they're also going to have to have a higher level of fixed cost to pay for the various amenities that they want because the revenue stream, which comes from the very rich people, supports not only the particular benefits that that group gets, but also the general operation and overhaul of the ship. Uh, so the confident prediction that you can make is if the voluntary arrangements see synergies between the two parts, it means that the cross-subsidies, as it were, are moving in both directions so that both groups gain from this thing. And if you separate these two things, then it turns out that the poor passengers are going to be worse off than they otherwise would have been because they would not be able to sustain on a boat which had only people in that group the same level of amenities that they had somewhere else. Now, this is not saying that this is a universal truth. I'm not trying to decree that you must have these kinds of things. Uh, if it turns out that the amenities of the pampered class are, are too expensive and the physical separations on the boat don't merit the increased wages, what will happen is a cruise ship will then go back to a different form of pricing and a different form of carriage. Uh, but that's the genius of markets. Uh, you have two boats from the outside. They may look alike, but inside their internal cultures could be very different. The regulator can't figure it out, but the operator of the two ships can. And so, as I mentioned in this article, there's another cruise line, the Royal Caribbean, and it also has a pampered class on board, also tries to take advantage of the fact that the higher demanders can help subsidize uh, the folks on the bottom end of the book by doing very well for themselves. But it tends to downplay physical separation, thinking that other methods of preference are a bit more subtle. So it may well be that those customers get free bottles of wine on the boat, or they get access to this, that, or the other room on certain kinds of vacations, or preferred seating in different kinds of shows. My job is not to explain to people how they want to run their businesses. Economists and lawyers are not managers. It's to try to explain why it is that the differential knowledge is such that the folks who are in charge of the situation, who internalize the pluses and minuses of all of their decisions, are going to make more accurate decisions than somebody who's very indignant, who happens to write for that most indignant of newspapers, <laughs> the New York Times. So um, I want to just make go a little deeper into the the essence of the point, which is that, as you point out in the article, both groups, the high-end elite group and the uh, less pampered group, uh, want a boat that has an engine that goes a certain speed, that has a certain safety uh, and stability to it. So you can't have one set of passengers going at different speed on the same boat. They both have to go. Now, if they wanted to go at different speed, of course, as you point out, they could pay for it. They can take a faster boat uh, if you wanted to. Evidently, that's not economically viable. But the fixed cost point, which is so uh, interesting and is at the heart of this, is that by sharing those fixed costs across both groups, both groups are benefiting. 
Yeah, and, you know, uh, this is not, as we say, a universal truth. There are many small elite ships. I recently took a trip to the Galapagos, and I was on a boat of 48 people. There was no obvious class differentiation on this particular boat. And what was interesting about it, it, it seemed to have every conceivable kind of group. It had families on it with some children. It had a lot of people who were in the retired or near-retired classes. And it had a lot of students backpacking across South America in one form or another who just happened to spend some time on this particular boat. Um, so you can work it any way that you want, but the, the key question is, if you work a device out that fails, either you change or you go bankrupt, and if it turns out you work out a device that succeeds, uh, well, then you'll expand the model. But as of every one of these models, um, if the first boat is wildly successful, the law of diminishing returns at the margin will suggest that the second one may not be quite as good and the third one will be worse. So after a while, what you'd expect to see in a market is a set of diverse strategies in which different boats follow different particular lines of behavior. And even though he doesn't understand why it's the case, that's what Nelson Schwartz reports, is you see different strategies, both of them succeeding. And chances are, if you actually took the passengers on the one boat by main force and put them on the other, and took the boat papers on the second boat and put them on the first, both groups would have been unhappier in their second environments than they were in their initial environments. And yeah, so the self-sorting equilibrium is an extremely important feature of these kinds of an arrangements. Yeah, when people complain about it, I, my first thought is usually, well, why don't you start a cruise line? You're going to be a very rich person. Uh, but of course, what people often want in this situation is is they want, um, either they don't like the social consequences of the profit maximizing, com- even though it's competitive outcome, or they just, you know, wish the world was was a different place than it, than it is, where people didn't care about perhaps those amenities or cared more about being with people who weren't like them. Right, I can understand that argument a little bit better. The idea that I wish people, and we're putting aside the regulatory, say, mm-hmm. suggestions or demands, I understand this idea that it's okay to root for a world where people would like to mingle with people who are different from themselves rather than stratifying themselves, say, economically by income or race or other things. So I, I get that part. Uh, do, you, do you have any sympathy for that? I have a lot of sympathy for it, but I think you have to understand how it takes place. This is often an issue, for example, that arises when you're talking about single-sex clubs. Uh, this was an issue which Harvard botched very badly when it made a decree that these clubs were incompatible with social living. Uh, what happens is you join a single-sex club or you join a club which is Jewish or black for certain portions of your life, and then for the rest of your life you go somewhere else. So, you know, I live in a very nice building when I'm in New York City on Central Park West, and I take the subway and I go with lots of other people. When I go to the pizza parlor in order to get myself a slice of pizza at lunch, God knows whom I'm with, but it's perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned. And so what happens is the way in which I think of it is I have a portfolio of events. Uh, and what I do is I diversify. There's some of them which I tend to engage in with my family only. I don't want outsiders. Others, it turns out, are Jewish events, so I'm quite happy to go to those. Others turn out to be NYU events. Others turn out to be city events. You know, one of the things that New York City does, which is very nice is they'll uh, take Bryan Park and they'll put an old movie up there and you'll have thousands of people coming and watching it from all walks of life. The one thing that you discover is the younger always do better on these things because when it comes to sitting on the grass, <laughs> my back won't take it. And my children are really quite happy staying there for the duration. But I, I think in effect what happens is most people really want to have a mixture of experiences in the way in which they interact with the rest of the world. And so what they do is they structure their social 
lives in this fashion. But if you put yourself in a case of somebody who's going on a cruise ship to get away from the really tough work that they do on a day-to-day basis, it may well be that a little bit of indulgence is a very important thing to them. And then they go back to a very democratic office. I mean, look, put it to you in this way. I work at a law school and people work in law firms and businesses and so forth. And one of the things that you have to understand is that if you go through the same building, often within feet of one another, you have people whose incomes differ from one to another by a factor of 10 or more. And what's interesting for the most part is in reasonably socialized people, everybody seems to get along pretty well with everybody else. It's not as though every prominent partner in a hedge fund talks down to his secretary, even though she earns maybe $100,000 while he's earning three or four or $10 million. And I think it's a real tribute to people that they can negotiate these sort of social interactions across these economic lines. And what happens is when you get guys like Nelson Schwartz coming up there and starting to tell you that there's something basically insidious about these people who are going on these cruise ships, what it oddly does is it creates a kind of resentment which makes ordinary social interactions a little bit harder than they ought to be. I mean, you know, my view about it is that civilization survives in many ways by small kind deeds that people do for one to another. So every time somebody holds open a door for somebody who's carrying a heavy package or a load of groceries, what you do is you see civilization in its best. And you want to get lots of things like that going on, and you won't get them if you have people writing for the New York Times or other left-wing publications who constantly hector people because they want to sit on a boat where they serve pina coladas in the most idyllic of circumstances. I think what we have to do is to learn to relax about the way in which other people live their lives. I can assure you there are many things that I would not be caught dead doing, which many Americans really love. I've never seen me at a wrestling match, for example, and so forth, unless it's for Columbia College or something. And, you know, um, my view is live and let live is a much better advice than be indignant about everything that you don't understand and you know that you don't like. And so the advice to people like William Schwartz is first, Nelson. Or Nelson Schwartz, rather. The first thing you have to do is to figure out what's going on. And basically, you have to check your indignation at the door uh, before you start to analyze these problems. Well, we're going to move on. to. I want to leave cruise ships behind. Before we do, I do have to mention, uh, I do have to use the phrase, uh, make that three hard-boiled eggs. And that's a, um, a reference of for a very uh, different range of services going to passengers on a cruise ship in a Marx Brothers movie. And, and I'll put up a link to the scene. It's a classic scene. It's called the stateroom scene. The Marx Brothers smuggle themselves on uh, at night at the opera. But you can't uh, – we can't leave cruise ships without mentioning it. Um, All right. You may mention it. And I'll now, even try to watch it. Yeah. Now we're going to move on to airplanes just be, only to briefly because – uh, recently, uh, in a landmark study for social science, that I'm I'm not going to uh, worry about all the details, but the gist of it was that air rage, which is uh, can be anything from uh, kicking the passenger in front of you to, uh, I guess, going berserk on an airplane, that it was discovered in a study. I put that word in quotes, or maybe I should put the word "discovered" in quotes. It was discovered in a study that planes that have passengers walking through a first-class section have more air rage than flights where you don't walk through the first-class section. And the authors point out, and we'll put up a link to an article about this if you're interested in it, the authors do point out that this could be subconscious. You don't even realize it, but by walking through first class, you become resentful and indignant um, 
I have to say that is not my uh, general reaction. I, I've only flown first class, I think twice in my life, maybe once. Uh, it's fun. I really like it. And when I fly uh, to Israel, which is a 12-hour flight roughly, and I pass through the really comfortable seats that look like uh, cocoons that the first-class passengers get to sleep in, I, I wish I had one. But I have chosen not to pay for it, and uh, sometimes the people who are paying me have chosen not to pay for it. So I'm content not to sit in them, but it doesn't make me usually want to hurt someone. But evidently, there's a claim that it does. So I just want to let you react to that. I think you'll have a good time. Well, I mean, I'm astonished, but not, I suppose, disappointed. But I, I think, in effect, one of the reasons why this happens is that people are constantly told that the inequalities are, are signs of a rigged system. And so what you do socially is you stoke up resentments that would not otherwise take place. One of the things to do this is to do a longitudinal study and ask whether or not the same phenomenon existed 25 years ago when inequality was not, quote, unquote, the defining social issue of our times. My guess is that the resentments were lower then and the incidents were lower as well. It's also, I think, extremely important to ask, you know, who are those people sitting in first class anyhow before you get resentful? And, you know, it's a real sort of interesting medley. Uh, some of the people were there because they need the extra space to work. Uh, you have somebody who's on a plane for 12 hours, and he's going to be working or she's going to be working for six of those hours, and they earn a million dollars a year. You know, all of a sudden, that's basically $3,000 worth of work time that you may be able to accomplish on a plane, which you would not be able to do if you were in more cramped quarters in the back of a uh, back of the plane. I remember once I was with a friend of mine, a law school classmate who was a general counsel of a major corporation, and he said he always took cars with drivers everywhere he went into New York City. And I said, not me. He said, I'm sitting there in the subway. He says, well, look, when I'm in the back of this car, I work. I get on the phone and I talk to people. I review memos. Sometimes there's something coming to me. And, you know, you take the salary of this person and you realize that the drivers are rounding error relative to the productivity error. So you get people like that. Another class of people who sit in first class are those people who have medical conditions which really don't tolerate sitting in small areas. They've got arthritis. They may be severely overweight. They may have other kinds of problems that, uh, with their backs and so forth that make it difficult to sit in the coach class. And, you know, if they want to go into first class to get a modicum of comfort, that's fine by me. And then third, there are these frequent flyers, I include myself in this class, who tend to fly first class fairly often on upgrades from other kinds of flights or from card benefit programs and the like. And so, you know, what we're doing in effect is we're not paying a lot of money for the plane. What we're doing is we're buying other services which get this as a freebie. And, you know, this is open to people with generally above average incomes, but it's certainly not the case that... Richard Epstein, at least, is willing to pay two or $3,000 uh, to sit in first class going across country. Uh, to me, economy class is a perfectly viable alternative under those circumstances, and it does allow me to work in a way in which I generally find it more difficult to do in the more squinchy clothes seats that are in the back. So it's a kind of like the cruise ships, and it's an efficient sorting mechanism. And, you know, you don't have to go on an airline like that. Southwest doesn't have first class. Yeah. Southwest has open seating. Southwest, when I remember quizzing somebody who worked for the company, says, we do it this way because it increases the ability for us to turn a plane around in very rapid fashion, and we don't have to pay the administrative cost of all this other fancy stuff. And so what we are, we're the Greyhound bus of the sky. And I fly Southwest all sorts of times and manage to survive quite well under these circumstances. So it's the same kind of point. There'll be heterogeneity there. Was a time once when some company decided to call itself Smoker's Airline. 
And the reason was everybody on the plane was entitled to smoke. It gave you notice of what would go on, and the government shut this thing down, not because it was a safety risk, but because they thought that smoking was dangerous. Now, I have to think smoking is dangerous as well. Never had a cigarette in my life, and never will as far as I'm concerned. But somebody else wants to go on Smoker's Airline, it doesn't bother me. So, again, it's the same point. How much is your indignation, your outrage, and your offense sufficient to warrant you to tell other people how they ought to be able to run their own businesses. And I think it's a very, very dangerous frame of mind to get yourself in that. And so the way I would want to handle the problem about rage is for people who now get on the air and tell you how bad inequality is to get on the air and change the message. Look, there are conveniences for being wealth. We hope you have incentives and succeed in it. But do not resent people who are more successful. Try to emulate them and respect them for their achievement rather than deny Announce them for their wealth, treating it as though it were all unearned. Well, I'm gonna, let me let me push back against that a little bit. So, sure. Uh, so again, just to make the economics point, the fixed cost of the uh, wings and the engines, uh, the first class passenger does get to the destination about a minute and a half before everyone else, just because they're closer to the exit. Yeah, they get uh, offers. They get offers, but they do tend to touch down at pretty much the same time. So that part. Uh, which is shared, and of course, one of the great miracles of modern economic life is that millions of people can fly on an airplane. That that has to be, and, and millions can take cruise ships. Uh, it, it's hard to remember that. It's not just the people who get yachts who get to go across the ocean in comfort. It's lots more people, and uh, exactly as you say, airplanes are really the buses of of yesterday to some extent. And the availability of air travel, being able to move across large distances in short periods of time, that that's available to such a huge portion of the public is a glorious thing, partly due to the fact that, of course, um, that there is this, this mixture of amenities, but also, of course, just for general prosperity. And it just sometimes it's to focus on the fact that some people have a slightly bigger seat for three hours or two hours or an hour and a half strikes, even 12 hours strikes me as a uh, missing the forest for the trees kind of problem. Yeah, well, you're missing the essential point. But I, let me make another point, which I think is instructive. I refer to upgrades and so forth. One of the things that you ought to do when you look at everybody sitting in coach is to put a little sign imaginarily on top of everybody's head and ask how much money they paid for their seat. And you will probably find that there are 12, 10, 12, 15 different prices that have been paid by these various people for the same seats. And so the question now, why is that going to be fair if some people pay more than others? Well, it turns out that seating is a very complicated business. Uh, so what happens is if you want a guaranteed seat to get across the country, you'll pay a premium to get it. If you're a flyer who doesn't care whether you go out on the 9 o'clock or the 12 o'clock plane, uh, you're willing to wait, and so the prices on some planes will go down and you'll take those. Other people are last-minute travelers, and they will basically, if a plane is filled up, will pay an enormous premium to get that last seat. I can recall several occasions when there have been storms where uh, we were presented with the option of flying on an airline and paying $900 for a coach seat to get from Chicago to New York, saying thank you, no thank you, but there was somebody out there who was prepared to do it. And what happens is if you allow for that particular flexibility to take place, what you will do is on average have lower rates and higher 
higher occupancy rates than you will if you basically use a model which says one fixed price for all people at all times regardless of when they come. And so virtually every system, not only does it worry about the gradations and the products that you receive, which is the point that you're emphasizing, what it does is has continuous time models for repricing everything that goes on. This is done all the time in airlines, it's done all the time in hotels um, under various circumstances. Apartment leases are done in exactly the same way. These prices are often reset uh, once a day, sometimes twice a day. Uh, the standard indexes with respect to hotels and apartment record every decline or increase in demand and then calibrate their prices to do that. What happens is you get much more efficient utilization of the overall system uh, so that satisfaction across the board is higher. Now, as you mentioned, that you could always look at the pimple. And the pimple is, you know, the guy sitting in the middle seat paid $50 more than the guy sitting on the aisle because he happened to buy the ticket at a different time in a different bucket, as they call it in the airlines industry. But you have to understand the systematic notion of what's going on and realize that the greatest growth in virtually every one of these markets takes place when there's the greatest degree of freedom in the way in which you price services and in the way in which you package these services. And the egalitarian impulse on this to standardize everything is essentially a guaranteed way uh, to make sure that these institutions will sputter and perhaps even die. So I was going to, uh, I was actually, without making it clear, trying to move away a little bit from the fixed cost point you're making. But I also want to, and I'm going to try to rephrase that, but I'm also going to push back against your uh, general feelings about resentment. I, the point I'm making is that is that about first class versus coach is that I think it's it's more easily seen in, say, Automobiles, which are don't have this fixed uh, phenomenon, they do a little bit through research and development. So, you know, I I drive a Honda Accord. You might drive a Lexus, or you might drive a Ferrari. For all I know, Richard, I don't know. But I love that Ferrari. I can't get in one. Or you might not have a car. For all I know, living in urban New York, I don't have a car. Yeah, but uh, so you poor fellow, uh, I have a car and you don't. Uh, but what I was going to say is that. Yes, my Honda is not as uh, fabulous as a top-of-the-line Lexus or BMW, but it's remarkably great <laughs> for such a fraction of the price. And I don't um, – I just think it just it, – it has to be remarked on that market forces have given the lower end of the market access not to the dregs, but to incredibly high-quality products, whether it's my cell phone or my – car or my trip across country on that airplane, the fact that my seat is a little bit more cramped than yours is, um, I just don't see it as to, to be a major issue. But now I want to give the complainers their due, and I'm going to push back against your- I uh, give the complainers their due. Your earlier, I'm going to push back against your earlier point. So I think what, what motivates them, and I, and I even feel this myself a bit, which is um, a confession, is that there are people who don't earn their money, and we had Robert Frank on recently talking about success versus luck, and he emphasizes luck um, in its role in success. I, I think it definitely plays a role. The part that I don't like where I share the resentment of some folks is that some people use either the political process or other means to earn rents, that is to, to, to make a, uh, a earn a premium above and beyond what they would earn in a market setting through manipulating the rules or some sort of advantage. And the that's what bothers me. It doesn't bother me that they then use that money to sit in the 
in the best seats at the theater or the best seats on the plane or the best seat in their car or whatever it is. I do not, I certainly agree with the complainers that we have, we have a situation where some people make money that they uh, should not be entitled to or, or I wish the world were such that they didn't earn it because of their use of the political process. The problem I have with that view is that if you're not careful, then you just complain about all success, as you as you point out. And I think that's very, very dangerous. If you don't distinguish between success that's earned and success that's stolen, I think it's um, you're on the road to a very bad situation. Well, first let me comment on the Robert Frank point, because I think we disagree fairly strongly. Well, there is no question that with respect to any particular venture that any person undertakes, that luck will have a lot to say about whether this one works or doesn't work. Uh, but it would be a mistake to assume that life is just one venture which either succeeds or doesn't succeed. It turns out that people try many different things in all sorts of different ways. And what you can say is that as you increase the number of plays that you take, the persons with perseverance, imagination, determination, grit, and so forth are the ones who will succeed, and the people who tend to be more lackadaisical and indifferent are the ones who will fail. Uh, so when you look at the end of this particular game, what you're doing is the people who say at age 50 or 60 or turn out to be highly successful, and then you go back and you track how much risk they took, how much discipline they showed, how much hours they put into their job, and so forth, I think that you will find that there's a pretty good correlation between the efforts that people put in and the natural abilities that they have and the outcomes that they receive. Now, the second point you make has to do with the problem about political resentment for people who use the system. It is ironic that the people who basically get most upset about inequalities with respect to wealth are also the people who want to constantly jigger the political system in a ways that make huge wealth transfers from one group to another. So if you take something like New York City, there's many a privileged person who lives in a rent-stabilized unit. Uh, these units uh, rent for under, say, $2,500 a month, and if you're on the Upper West Side, of Manhattan, their market value in a deregulated market would be two or three times that on a monthly basis. They take the excess and they put it into their Connecticut houses and their New Jersey vacation homes and so forth. Yeah, I think that this is really outrageous, but rather than getting mad at individuals, what you have to do is you have to fix the institutions that are there. And competitive markets essentially winnow out the people who ought not to succeed, whereas political markets allow you to keep a program like rent control in place and New York City since 1943 and the stabilization program since 1969 and so forth. Uh, the various agricultural programs that we have are in place from the New Deal and so forth. So there are huge numbers of things. But my attitude is not to get mad at people who take their money and spend it, but to simply attack these kinds of programs and to say, every time you see a deviation from competitive market solutions uh, that are mandated by government cross-subsidies, you have an illegitimate accumulation of wealth. What is so ironic is that the people who are really rich, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Bill Gates, they didn't make their money on a rent-stabilized unit. Uh, they made their money by inventing new markets that nobody ever saw and taking a tiny fraction of the total social gain that they've done. The usual estimates are that the billionaire who gets a billion bucks from his ventures has probably created 10 or $20 billion of wealth in everybody else. And as far as I'm concerned, hallelujah, because not only have they created wealth in everybody else, but there's the following dirty little secret. Nobody can spend a billion dollars a year on himself and still keep sane. There's no amount of wine that you can buy, no amount of things that you can consume that would allow you to do 
uh, that. And so in the end, the people who earn huge amounts of money consume relatively little of what they earn, and they end up endowing laboratories, schools, hospitals, churches, and all the rest of that stuff. America lives in many cases off of the largesse and benevolence of its richest people. And I think we ought to acknowledge to some extent the debt that we owe to them. Look at the name of every university that's been created in recent years. You know, our friend Nelson Schwartz starts talking about the robber barons. Well, one of those robber barons was Johns Hopkins. Oh, as in Johns Hopkins University. Another was Leland Stanford. Oh, as in Stanford University and so forth. Don't forget I mean, Mr. Rockefeller. Don't forget Mr. Rockefeller. Rockefeller University of Chicago, Spelman College, Rockefeller Institute, and so forth. Bill Gates, you know, huge amounts of largesse here, there, and the other place. If you look at the patterns of consumption, uh, the inequalities of wealth on the income side are much less frightening. Uh, of course, a lot of people don't like the idea that Bill Gates and others use their wealth to steer social programs through voluntary philanthropy. They don't like that they can influence universities. They don't like that they can influence, uh, say, malaria efforts around the world. They would much rather prefer a uh, democratic process where the political process allocates that money instead of uh, a single wealthy individual. Again, I'm, that's not my issue, but uh, they do worry about that. They don't even like. I they don't even like. The, you're viewing this as a, as the gravy or the silver lining for them. They don't even like that either. I mean, resentment has its price. But then you think of all the people who attend these institutions, all the people who benefit from these institutions, all the people who are cured by these institutions, and imagine what would happen if what you did is you made these allocation decisions arrest in the Department of Education or the Office of Civil Rights, where the way in which they get things is not through voluntary situation, but they coerce everybody to do things that are absolutely crazy, including the way in which they start to work in housing markets by trying to mandate a whole range of programs that force interactions that have no voluntary basis and which can only be kept in place uh, by the arm and the force of the state. As between the two, voluntarism as opposed to coercion, one is cheaper and more effective than the other, and that other people really resent the fact that Bill Gates wants to save the lives of small children, and if Warren Buffett manages to get billionaires to give away half their money, I think that we should rejoice in their um, resentments rather than simply say, oh my God, you've really got a great point here. Uh, we want to see the creation of wealth, and what happens is voluntary redistribution, which was always a key feature of laissez-faire economics going back to the 1850s and so forth, is in fact a much more powerful way for equalization than any of these forced government transfer programs, which have a funny way of benefiting the people who run the programs rather than their ostensible beneficiaries who almost always get shortchanged in the process. Yeah, I agree with you, but I, I know many uh, people do not. And um, I know, and you know what? I'm ha quite happy to debate them, but you know, one of the things that I find today is that there is so much willingness to treat inequality as though it's a sort of dominant social problem, but there's a deep philosophical mistake. You and I, trained in the economic tradition, like Pareto improvements. We like situations where you move from state A to state B, where everybody is better off in state A and state B than they are in state A, and nobody's worse off. We kind of like all of that. But every time you allow that to take place, you may well increase inequality inside a system. So the hard question, Russ, is to ask yourself the following question. You start with 10 people at 10, and then you have a huge innovation. One of them goes up to 1,000, and the other go, everybody else goes up to 100. And you say, no, 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 there's much more inequality in the system now because this one person has more wealth than all other nine people in that society together. So what's their alternative? 
They want to go from a society in which everybody starts with 100 to one in which everyone ends up with 102, um, you know, instead of having much larger well, gains. I think that's the tough question. And I think that inequality at this particular point, if you really get upset about inequality, Pareto improvements become almost impossible to achieve because the moment the gap starts to get larger, as it will when there's initiative and risk-taking and all the rest of that particular stuff, the moment they get the gap gets bobbed, you're going to have somebody who's going to try to veto the transaction. And of course, when you look at the ex post distribution, uh, you have to remember that there was the risk factor that was built into it. This person may have tried five of these ventures, succeeded on one, and if you don't give them the return on the one, then the next person going forward will never have the wherewithal uh, to survive the five failures, knowing that he won't be able to get the return from the sixth success. So I'm going to I'm going to agree with you, and then I'm going to disagree with you. So I'm going to agree with you in the following way: I want to create a um, a Rawlsian veil of ignorance uh, reference to John Rawls, where we're going to imagine different states of the world, but you don't know where you're going to be in those different states. So, first state of the world is 1900. Uh, you might end up being a, a rich person or a poor person. The next state of the world is 2016. Again, you might end up being a rich person or a poor person. I think most people alive today, I don't think most, I think everybody alive today, almost everyone, not quite everyone, but an enormous number of people today would prefer to have a random shot at a 2016 life than even actually to be in the upper 10% or 5% in 1900. So, not even close. Right, you'd accept that as a truth, right? Yes, right, but there's another truth. Go ahead. Okay, you, you tell I, me your truth, and I'll the, tell you mine. Well, that's the part you and I, I think, agree on. I'm going to give you the part we might disagree on, or at least where I'm going to push back a little bit. So let's say um, – let's take um, two of my favorite examples. Um, Brandon Page, who, who founded uh, – Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who founded Google. I think they've made yeah. the world an immensely better place. I'm happy that they're incredibly wealthy. Uh, they're free to squander their wealth or invest it or – try to make the world a better place with that. I think they do all, all three. They don't try to squander it, but they certainly are trying all kinds of different things and uh, God bless them and I'm happy for them and I'm, my life is immeasurably improved by Google. But let's take the counterexample. Let's suppose instead of Google, I'm going to try to give Robert Frank his due here. Let's suppose instead of Google getting to the top, it was Lycos, which was a search engine or Alta Vista, two search engines in the 90s that I used. They were wonderful too, by the way. I'm willing to concede the fact that they're not quite as good as Google. It might be they are, or they would have been, but let's just say that they're not quite as good. Uh, is And as you point out, Google has made a lot of us very rich, and a couple people, more than a couple, but a number, a small group, incredibly rich. So the argument would be, well, you know, if we hadn't had Google, we would have had Lycos or AltaVista or Yahoo or whatever it would have been. And is it really right in some philosophical sense, and I'm not talking about the economics right now, but in moral sense, that they get so much of the gains, that they're so wealthy. And if we took some of it, and of course I don't want to, but the critics do, if we took some of it, would it really be a bad thing? Would they not have worked on Google? Would the incentive effects not have been so strong that they it wouldn't have happened, that their search engine wouldn't be quite as good if they could only have been worth, say, a billion instead of tens of billions or whatever it is? I don't even know. I mean, well, that's, me that's the argument. So I think that argument is I, – I, I, I think our side tends to overstate the incentive effects. I'm opposed to that confisc- confiscatory kind of taxation for different reasons, not, not the fact, oh, we'll all be a lot poorer if we did that because I'm not sure that's true. 
But I, I well, think so. Go ahead, respond. No, look, I mean, first of all, you have to ask yourself: Would you even have these other surf engines like this Lycos thing if you would change the incentive structure? It's one thing to say that Google's only a little bit better than the other guy, which may or may not be true. But if you change the risk and reward ratios, you would have never had the platform from which these other things could maybe. have gone. Maybe. But, but, and so, I mean, I, I don't I think don't it's a maybe. I think, I think it's a look. I mean, I spend a lot of time working on the patent innovation space and so forth. And, and it seems very clear to me, having done that, when you start weakening the remedies that you give to intellectual property, it's going to have serious negative effects on innovation. Now, I don't think – I don't think – Richard, I don't think Sergey Brin, when he was a grad student, sat around thinking, oh, if I'm only going to make a billion instead of 30 billion, this isn't worth it. it no, that- no, it isn't that he does that. But I think what he did think about is if I know that I'm going to go in there and somebody is going to be able to stop what I can gain, it's going to be a less attractive venture. And that would start to slow these people up. Look, we see right now under the current situation that the – Formation of startups in the United States is at a very much at an all-time low uh, relative to recent years, and it's because the entire regulatory climate is that way. And the second point on redistribution, one of the things that people tend to neglect is that the most efficient tax system, that is a flat tax probably on consumption but perhaps on income, uh, a flat tax like this is massively redistributed. Um, it turns out that, you know, you earn a billion dollars, somebody else earns $100,000, and when you take 10% from each of these guys, uh, the fellow who is now having to put in $100 million a year is not getting $100 million in public benefits out of this particular situation. And, in fact, one of the great achievements that we had during the so-called Gilded Age is that the rich paid for the sewers from which everybody benefited in terms of the improvements in health from uh, cleaner water and lower rates of disease. And so if you go back to this public space again and realize that you cannot function, you finance it with happiness, you have to have dollars in one sense or another, you got a lot of redistribution working through the system under a system which is not going to be explicit for it. And so the redistribution you get under that system plus the higher level of growth that you get with a simple tax system and the greater private opportunities tends to swamp everything else. Let me mention one other point. There's an interesting book by a man named Robert Gordon that came out. And what he points out, um, without dispute, is that the single greatest transformative period in the history of the United States, indeed the world, in terms of wealth, is roughly speaking the age of 1870 to 1940. Um, If you go to the beginning of that period and you see the nascent development starting with railroads, and then you go to the end of it with the airplane and the electric ride and the movie theaters and the huge advances in medicine, we've never had a period. That's the Gilded Age. That's the era of Lochner-like capitalism in the United States Supreme Court. So if you're trying to figure out what the aggregates are, uh, you have to put the 1900-2016 issue in a slightly different fashion. There's no question as a matter of static wealth that things are infinitely better today than they were then. And indeed, many of these things which were once protected as intellectual property have long passed into the public domain as they should. But ask a different question. What do you think the expected growth was in 1900 as opposed to the expected growth of the economy is today? And there's no question that in 1900, everybody expected their children would live longer, be taller, richer and happier than they were. Uh, The year 2016, I think most people are decidedly pessimistic. And were they right in 1900? Well, let me just give you (laughs) the best numbers. The single most reliable index of social welfare is life expectancy. Because you can't fake death, and it's much more difficult to measure uh, levels of happiness and satisfaction. Uh, from 1850 to 1900, it goes from 40 to 47 years. 
Uh, that is more increase in 50 years under laissez-faire type regimes than took place in the previous 300 years, where life expectancy was basically constant around 40. From 1900 to 1920, it goes from 47 to 54. I mean, this is astonishing progress which takes place. And the thing about a life expectancy number is everybody's weighted equally. So you can't say, aha, this is simply what's happened to the top 1%. So the argument would be, well, ordinary people, their life expectancy goes from 40 to 41, but somebody who's in the top 1%, their life expectancy goes from 50 to 300 um, in order to build this up. It's essentially what happens is if you take the single most valuable measure of social welfare, it turns out that the inegalitarian societies of laissez-faire do far better under that measure than anything else. And if you just were to check the rate of decline in childhood mortality, it's simply unbelievable. Uh, I once had a debate with a man named Michael Marmot, who's an English uh, health statistician and egalitarian. And, you know, what he does is he points out, you know, if you're born in the top quartile, your chances of infant mortality is about one quarter of that of somebody who's born in the bottom quartile. That's absolutely true. But if you go these numbers 150 years ago, you're talking about the difference between 15 and 60%. And then when you go later, it's 1.5 to 6%, roughly, a tenfold increase for both groups. Well, what does it mean? It means rich people, well, they gain a little bit, 5%. These poor people are gaining 50% improvements in their lives. That is, if you're the most vulnerable population, it turns out you're the ones who receive by far the largest gains from any kind of generalized improvement with respect to the health care delivery system. And once one recognizes that and takes into account the non-pecuniary part of income inequality, it turns out that the leveling that has taken place is enormous by virtue of the fact that poor people um, enjoy their longer lives maybe not quite as much as the rich people, but getting an extra 30 years of life when it turns out you're in the bottom quarter is a very big deal indeed by any kind of hedonic measure that you care to choose. Well, I'm tempted just to applaud, stand and applaud, but but I, do but I do have to, to do have to mention Respect, that your favorite word. Yeah, I, well, that's my polite word for disagree or argue with uh, today. I don't know why I've fallen into that habit. Um, <laughs> so I, I do have to mention that you know, a lot of enormous improvements are going on right now in in world life expectancy and world poverty, uh, standard of living in China, where they're being run by a totalitarian regime. You can argue how much of the improvement is due to the capitalist forces they've unleashed, but it is awkward uh, to notice that. I don't know, and of course, a lot of the improvements in, in longevity that you mentioned are coming from uh, health improvements, many of which were centralized, like the clean water and, and other things, uh, that the, the reduced infant mortality, which is a huge part of the increase in longevity. Not yeah. all of it, but some, but a good chunk well, I of said, it. I said the whole stuff, the, the London sewers was the greatest public works project in history up to the time, and it had huge events, but it can only be financed out of wealth, not out of happiness. And so it turns out the rich paid a disproportionate amount from which the poor got a huge cross-subsidy. And there was nobody on the rich side who complained about it. I mean, so I agree with all of that. My point is that you want to keep those forces going. Let me just mention one other number, which is very frightening. Um, if you try to figure out about the increase in health expense, 
uh, in longevity. And you take the pre and the post-Medicare age, roughly speaking, it's clear much more advanced took place in the earlier years. And the interesting feature is that if you take health expectancy or life expectancy conditional on reaching age 65, in the last 55 years or so, it's only gone up by about four years. Um, and, and I think it's declined, that, and it's declined recently for the first time in forever. Last year, it's starting to decline first again. First time in forever, yeah. Well, the, and the reason is the stagnant growth in the United States. If you want to get a good measure of why health outcomes and lung mortality outcomes are likely to get worse, you don't look at average income, which is going to be heavily influenced by the top 0.1%. You look at median incomes, and median incomes in the United States for the last eight or so years have been going down close to a percentage a year. And the reason is we have these massively oppressive policies uh, on labor and capital markets and on real estate markets. And it turns out individually, each one of them has some fancy ad hoc rationalization, usually not worth the powder to blow it to hell, but they have them anyhow. But cumulatively, these things are synergies, and these synergies are all negative. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that's why I mentioned the 2016 prospects. Um, uh, the arrow's pointing in the wrong direction. In 1900, when you had government at all levels being 3 or 4% of total GDP, the arrows moved in the opposite direction. I don't think people really understand that you know, the New Deal at its best was you know, 5% of the economy was controlled by the government by direct expenditures. And then the more important things they did was to wreck market after market by cartels. But today, what we do is we have all the cartelization going on in many of these markets and many more direct government controls. And an economy cannot survive. The incremental burdens from these new programs far exceeds the incremental benefits. But if you start looking at the way in which things come out of Washington today and so forth, you will always see that the next protective program is going to be far better than any one that we've had before. And they always turn out and they backfire. We've seen this with respect to financial services. We've seen it with respect to health care. The two great achievements of the previous administration, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act on the one hand and the Affordable Care Act on the other, are turning out to be huge albatrosses on the economy. I have news for you, Richard. We're still in that administration. It's not the previous one yet. Uh, well, you're I, looking ahead. I may know it. Not soon enough. But yeah, we, yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. Stuff. We'll see about that. But um, I, you know, of course, I'm sympathetic to your concerns about government regulation. I just um, I find it hard to accept that there's strong evidence other than correlation uh, for those claims. And I do see lots of other factors. I do see. The mismeasurement of, of, say, median income, the ignoring of demographic change, immigration, changes in family structure that I think have distorted how we perceive the overall health of the economy. And I do think there's some idiosyncratic things going on, say, with drug use uh, in particular, that perhaps lowering life expectancy that have nothing to do with with government regulation other than uh, the subsidies to drug use that are built into our uh, insurance and healthcare schemes. Um I'm going to make a more philosophical point about redistribution, though, and get your reaction. Okay. Sure. So uh, I do believe, I worry that, as I mentioned earlier, that our emphasis, the people on our side who want smaller government, less redistribution, that our emphasis on uh, the incentive effects are overblown. And I'll just mention one example. Um, As we know, as you know well, in, uh, in the 1970s, in the 1960s, the highest marginal tax rate was 70, 90? What was it? It was 70%. Deceptive number. A very large but number. Mean. But it was a very large number. And now it's a lot lower. Uh, it, went, mm-hmm. it, went, it went lower still. Uh, 
for a while, and then it, it slowly creeped back up. But you're not going to see any changes in the growth rate data to your eye. It's got to be a very subtle effect to try to tease out the impact of that. It's striking to me how much growth and how much innovation we had when those rates were high. It didn't seem to stop things. So the crude evidence, I'm not saying crude is correct, because, of course, it is, it's just a different correlation than one you're mentioning. But it is striking that, and Ed Lemer's pointed this out, under high tax regimes, low tax regimes, the growth path of the United States is pretty – Pretty straightforward. Well, I mean, but you have to know what a high tax regime is. Um, uh, what happens is, whenever you have high tax regimes like the ninety percent progressive tax rates, they, first of all, the marginal rate at that is very, very high. So, a very tiny portion of the population is affected. But high tax rates are always accompanied by uh, tax shelter gimmicks of one sort or another. And so, during the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, the ability to shelter income ordinary income through real estate tax devices was very great. Indeed, even today, if you know what you're doing, you could shelter huge amounts of money. When Warren Buffett starts to talk about he pays less on a marginal tax rate than his um, secretary, what he's doing is he's concealing from you the serious problem, which is he has found ways through a series of indefensible devices, all of which are perfectly legal under the current law, uh, to shelter income through using partnership devices of one kind or another with their phony allocations, using depreciation devices off of borrowed capital on the one hand and a stepped-up basis of debt. I'm sure you don't understand what any of these things are. I can happily explain them. And I don't want them. to. That's the best no, part. No, but you do want to because <laughs> no, but, that's the point. No, the, the beauty of the system, no, the beauty of the system is that even people in public policy, like myself, find these snoozers, so we don't want to hear about them. Yeah, and it's, the it's a you feature. don't want to hear about them, but that's what keeps the yeah. system alive. No, it's a feature, it's not a bug. It's a fabulous thing that it's opaque. For them. No, it's not for them. Uh, it's not for them, but not for us. <laughs> no, what okay. happens is, I mean, for many years, you know, I started as a tax professor, and actually, I went into teaching. The year I entered, 1968, was the year in which the ruling 68-643 was introduced, in which the sort of the prepaid interest deduction was finally removed from all sorts of real estate deals. And in my first semester of teaching um, in 1968, in the fall, all the tax lawyers that I knew were busily closing these deals before this ruling took effect sometime in mid-November. Um, I, I think people do not understand the ability of the one thing to offset the other. But when Fair you enough. have the current type point. of system. Um, when you have the current kind of system where people having earned income where there's no shelter, it's not only the federal taxes that you have to worry about, there are also state and city taxes. Yep. And so in a place like New York, you start to see this. And if you really think taxes don't have this kind of an effect, then you'd be very hard pressed to explain why it is that the zero tax states like Florida and Texas on the income tax attract droves of people coming out of New York, California, and, and Illinois. Illinois doesn't have high income taxes. It has high real estate taxes, dreadful workman's compensation laws, and so forth. But a a lot of the internal movements that take place in, say, the United States are very powerfully explained by state tax differentials, uh, which are in many cases much smaller, of course, than the total amount of the federal burden. I think it's wrong to assume this. Anybody who goes into business knows how to calculate what they call internal rates of return. And as those tax numbers start to go up, these projects that are marginal get shelved. And so what you see are the ones that survive are the highly profitable ones. People say, aha, look at these enormous gains that people make. What they're missing is the true social cost comes not in the reduced return on these 
bonanza projects, but the fact that other projects that would be viable in a lower tax environment are no longer going to start to take place. That's the first point. The second point is you have to understand it's not just the tax system that works. Uh, the regulatory system overall has a huge impact. And when we had these very high tax rates in the 50s and 60s and so forth, it turned out the other regulatory environments were more or less congenial to the aggregation of capital, in some cases unduly so because they created pockets of monopoly wealth and so forth. And the big difference between now and the 1990s is in the 1990s, we had a mildly deregulatory regime starting from Reagan going through the end of Clinton. And after 2000, uh, starting with Bush one, of course, in the beginning of his years and going through the Obama administration, we've been much more intensively regulatory. And regulation is a substitute for taxation. And when you're trying to figure out what's going on, you have to sum the two. You can't look simply look at the one that you've had. And so, you know, you're trying to figure out what's going on with capital gains. Everybody's capital gains is now subject to a 2.9% uh, tax in order to fund the Medicare programs and so forth. This has real impact on liquidity and capital markets um, and the way in which things go. And if you can't turn over your investments, uh, what happens is uh, bad investments get kept too long and good investments never get made. I mean, Bob Lucas, I remember after he won his Nobel Prize, you know, what he said is he started out in life as somebody believed in high capital gains tax for everybody, and he came to the conclusion that the correct capital gains tax was zero. Um, because you want to get redeployment of capital, which simply dominates the amount of wealth you take out. I will go one step further. Uh, the ability to distinguish between capital and labor and all sorts of very complicated business transactions is almost an impossibility. So I've actually come to favor a consumption tax because at that point you don't care about the source of the income. You just care about when it's spent, and a consumption tax will on average do better on the trade-off between current consumption and savings. Savings, as we know, is systematically overtaxed under yeah. the currency. And a lot of tax lawyers and accountants, uh, after that change, will no longer be able to sit in first class uh, on uh, the airplanes. That is certainly true. Which, they will. Which would I mean, be a good thing, not for them personally, for, and maybe it might be painful for a while, but it would be better to have fewer people trying to figure out ways around a complex tax system uh, and have productive, genuinely productive people who produce benefits for people other than just their um, clients uh, having the chance to create wealth and sit in those seats too, but I, I, Amen. I want to make a a different philosophical point. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to be agnostic about those incentive effects. I do agree, by the way, on capital gains. Uh, obviously, I would prefer um, a simple tax system, a consumption tax. It could even be progressive. I don't really care uh, as long as it's straightforward with no deductions. Uh, and uh, no capital gains would just be a fabulous thing for the world, and it's probably not going to happen. But let's put that to the side. Um, so I'm going to let, let's. I want you to concede, or I will concede. Um, I'm going to ignore the incentive effects. I'm going to assume. I want to assume they're small. That that there aren't big uh, discouragements of creativity and innovation due to due to taxation or due to um, regulation. I do think there are some from regulation, despite my pushback earlier. But I want to make a different point, which is um, I'm going to go out on a different limb. And I have to concede, I think I, I realize this from talking to you, that even if uh, those incentive effects are zero, that there's no discouragement of innovation and creativity uh, from, from the um, tax rates and the regulatory system, I, I really, it turns out I just, I really don't want that those billions of dollars going through the 
the sausage uh, factory of of Washington D.C. or or uh, Albany or um, Annapolis, and I and I I say that uh, those are state capitals. I say that because I have to concede that actually I think it's a better world when Mark Zuckerberg and Sergey Brin and Steve Jobs and Elon Musk when they allocate their wealth as they see fit and they're going to make a ton of mistakes they're going to do some things people don't like um and but they'll be accountable and there's also tons of competition i really much prefer that to where where that money is taken from them even if it has no incentive effects but it is then up for grabs through the political system because i think that's ultimately the road to tyranny i don't have enough faith in the ability of the political system to spend that money wisely. And I would much rather have uh, creative people spend it uh, as they see fit, even if it's on themselves. But uh, they don't, as you point out, they don't spend it on themselves much, a little bit, but most of it they spend on in ways they think will maybe transform the world and some of those will succeed and that'll be great. Let me just mention one area where the contrast is most vivid and that's education. Um, you'll look at the charter schools on the one hand and the public schools on the other. And the charter schools are heavily supported by hedge fund people of one kind or another, most of whom have some libertarian instincts, who are desperately concerned to see that kids, often minority kids, at the bottom of the economic ladder get a fair shot. My son, Elliot, works at the Success Academy in New York, and these kids score in the top 1% in math and the top 3% in English statewide. And so what happens, every single public institution tries to break them down. The unions try to destroy them. The New York Times, six Kate Taylor on on them with a series of stories which are an embarrassment uh, to the newspaper and so forth in an effort to try and uh, turn popular opinion against them. This is a classic illustration of the way in which different kinds of money start to work. And what happens with the public money? Uh, the single most important word in modern social theory today is compliance. Uh, because compliance is a direct function of regulation. And it turns out that the commands that are put on people are not ones that are easily knowable that you could read in a book. What they do is they require constant monitoring and supervision. Uh, there was a graph in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about the huge decline in the total size of the amount of money in the home mortgage market for a variety of reasons. But one of the powerful drivers of this is compliance costs on loans. And if it turns out these costs are basically fixed uh, for the size of the loan doesn't matter very much. So you're going to have a better shot at making a loan to a rich person because your compliance costs are lower than doing it for poor people. And so sure enough, you not only do you have less, fewer rich people getting money, you get disproportionately fewer poor people getting money under these kinds of regimes. And why is it that we need all this compliance? Nobody knows. But I teach legal system after legal system in which the common strategy is we want to investigate everything that could possibly go wrong. And then when something does go wrong, uh, do nothing about it. And this is the way in which we tend to work. The correct system is you don't want to worry about compliance. What you do is you punish people when they overstep the line and let them figure out how to stay on the right side of the line, which they will generally do. Uh, so that what we are seeing now is this change in the compliance culture means that virtually every business that you're looking at today is less nimble, less efficient than it was before. And the government does this on private firms. It does it on public institutions. It's the federal government riding herd over the state. And unless we can reverse that particular notion and recognize that the old maxim, when somebody from the government comes to you and says, I'm here to help you, you know exactly what they mean. 
and they're here to take advantage of you because you cannot basically turn them down on the grounds that they don't have good customer relations. On that cheerful note, my guest today has been Richard Epstein. Richard, thanks as always for being part of EconTalk. Well, my pleasure to be here, Russ. I always like the pushback. <laughs> this is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.